This podcast is about correcting the balance, whether it's something celebrated as good when it shouldn't be or the other way around. Or maybe the heroic tales of history just need to be knocked straight on their ass. Me, I just want to share the complete picture because that's when this whole thing gets fun. Warning, jokes and sarcasm may ensue. Welcome to Prick the Balloon. Hi, I'm Mike Vance, and welcome to Episode 2 of Prick the Balloon. Almost everything topical has a counterpart in history. On the drop date for this episode, the United Auto Workers, the Writers Guild, and the Screen Actors are still out on strike. That hits you especially hard if you like to watch TV in the backseat of your new car. So, I thought we might take a look at the history of American labor unions, and I want you to keep in mind from the start that in spite of big business and the Republicans in particular having fought tooth and nail against labor for the past 150 years, there have been moments when American workers really accomplished something. Honestly, there are few aspects of our history more interesting and less known than labor history. I would love to make a documentary about it someday if I can ever find the money Hint, hint. Let's start at the beginning. Trade unions are almost as old as the United States Constitution. Before our Constitution could even attend kindergarten, if there'd been such a crazy thing, the cordwainers, and that is a word that needs invigorating, the cordwainers of Philadelphia organized as a union to improve their wages. Cordwainers, for those of you who weren't old enough to remember the 18th century, is someone who makes shoes from new leather, from the ground up, as it were the soul of the shoe industry. Okay, really sorry. There was actually a strike even earlier than that. In 1768, the journeyman tailors in New York City went on strike to protest a reduction in wages, but they stopped short of organizing a union. By the late 1820s, some of these individual trade unions started banding together. There were even a few national trade unions before the Civil War, and I keep saying trade unions because that's who was doing this. Skilled craftsmen at a given trade. You didn't see people like factory workers or laborers start to embrace unionization until the late 1860s and even after that. And there was a real political and moral component with these early unions too. And I don't want to get too far off into the high weeds, but These people were forming together as part of a movement toward equality that brought you such hits as the American Revolution. It's kind of a continuation of the Enlightenment and Rousseau and Locke and Voltaire and Tom Paine. When the Industrial Revolution started and you get factories and machinery, not only did some of these craftsmen start to fear losing their jobs to automation, they also looked far enough ahead to see a coming separation between a poor worker class and a rich business owner class. And I mention this because it comes from a very noble and human thought process. While the trade unions are fighting for specific individual improvement, paycheck issues, there are these working man's political groups who want to better the human masses. Big picture stuff. Their methods are sometimes at odds with the trade unions, but they're all kind of going for the same broad goal. And the one I want to mention is the Knights of Labor. And if you don't love that name, check your pulse, because Jack, you dead. The founder of the Noble and Holy Order of the Knights of Labor, and no, man, I am not making that up, is this guy, Philadelphia again, named Uriah Stevens. When he was a kid, his family had lost everything in one of those economic panics that I had alluded to with Andrew Jackson. And he was forced to work as an unpaid apprentice, learning to be a mechanic. Heavy on unpaid, 
Yep, working all day without pay because, look here, boy, you might learn something. So Uriah Stevens is now all grown up and working as a garment cutter whose trade union is just disbanded because they failed to get a wage increase. Stevens thinks that all labor needs to be joined together. At first, the Knights of Labor is a secret society, presumably with cool hats and a handshake. But soon, they go public. A decade later, under new management, a Pennsylvania machinist named Powderly, the Knights decide women need to be a part of this whole thing, too. And outsiders are saying, what kind of radical shit is this? By the 1880s, the Knights of Labor have over 700,000 members. When the Union Pacific Railroad cuts workers' wages by 10%, the Knights immediately organize a strike and shut that railroad down like six tabs of modium. It takes four days before the railroad gives in. Three months later, the railroad tries the same wage cut again, and the Knights organize another strike. This time, it takes five days before the UP gives up, this time for real. The Knights of Labor are also leading the fight against other things. They wanted to end the use of child and convict labor because, quite honestly, the competition was cutting the wages of working adults. They fought for equal pay for women. They wanted binding arbitration for worker management disputes. And the nationalization of the railroads and the brand new telephone technology because these were vital to the health of the nation and should not be a source of private profit. The Knights pushed for a graduated federal income tax, something that eventually happened in 1913. And here's one more thing. The Knights of Labor opened their membership to blacks. Now, that is not as radical as it seems, because as brutal and discriminatory as things were at the time, the brunt, the worst of Jim Crow, didn't start to take hold legally until the 1890s. One thing they were anything but progressive about was foreign workers. The Knights supported the Chinese Exclusion Act because they saw all these immigrants as just unneeded competition. Finally, the big railroad workers decided they need to stand up to the Knights. They couldn't endanger their fortunes just so a few million workers' kids could have oatmeal, right? I've got polo ponies to feed, man. The first time it went tits up, was the Great Southwest Strike against Jay Gould's railroads in Texas. It not only failed, but Gould permanently blacklisted hundreds of workers who went out on strike. Another part of the demise of the Holy Knights was the fact that the very specific needs of those trade unions, trying to keep their wages and working conditions livable, another part of the demise of the Holy Knights was the fact that the very specific needs of those trade unions, trying to keep their wages and working conditions livable, felt like they were getting lost in this big overarching message of labor reform. While they probably favored the same big-picture items, the trade unions were most concerned with putting decent food on their tables and having the time to eat it. Now, I mentioned child labor. And child labor, of course, is now coming back. Right now in 2023, right-wing politicians who are getting big campaign contributions from rich manufacturers, known in every other country on earth as bribes, have been passing laws that allow children to work in factories right here today in the good old U.S. of A. Not just a few, but thousands of teenage immigrants, many of them the undocumented ones the same politicians are setting their hair on fire about, are spending their nights doing things like hosing out slaughterhouses and chicken factories. I mean, why worry about child labor in Indonesia making your running shoes when we can exploit kids right here at home? America. I want to mention a name in relation to child labor, and I'm begging you, hunt down the photography of Lewis Wicks Hine. 
Go to the Library of Congress at loc.gov and search for his images. His muckraking photography did more to turn public opinion and end the practice than anything else. Find these photos. It's like the napalm girl from Vietnam, only there are hundreds of these images. From an artistic standpoint, Hine was a brilliant photographer, but I think it's also the best example ever of using photography for a social movement. Another big nail in the Knights of Labor coffin was the Haymarket Riot. The McCormick Reaper workers, and that's farm equipment, by the way, were out on strike in early summer 1886. Might as well have been the Grim Reaper since Chicago police killed and wounded a bunch of strikers. The next day, there was a big protest at Haymarket Square in Chi-Town, city of big shoulders, and 2,000 people show up at the rally, including the mayor of Chicago. When police get there to break things up, some a-hole throws a bomb into the crowd of police and kills seven of them, plus a civilian. And this is why we can't have nice things. Eight people among the protesters get executed in spite of a severe lack of evidence. The Knights were not behind the killings, but they were among the organizers. And in the PR battle, and that's what history all is, is a bunch of public relations, that's who got blamed, and their membership plummeted. Dumbasses like simple answers regardless of whether they're truthful or not. Just don't complicate things, bro. It gives me a headache. Kind of like the morons who see no difference between a peaceful BLM protest and crackheads who use it as cover to loot a Best Buy. Most protesters are not criminals any more than most deer hunters shoot other people. But none of that logic meant jack shit to the dreaded knights who say labor. Next up was the AFL, not the one with the Oilers, Patriots, and Raiders, but the American Federation of Labor. And they rose up in the 1880s, kind of filled the vacuum. They're led by a socialist named Samuel Gompers, which is a name that for some reason leaves me with visions of very bad teeth. They formed as kind of a back-to-basic collection of unions, dedicated to what they called pure and simple unionism self-organizing along trade lines for job-related goals. And they used a really cool phrase, industrial emancipation. By 1906, they created a labor list of grievances, and they told politicians either support them or lose the votes of working men. Keep in mind, women can't yet vote. But within a decade or two, as the two major parties started to address some of these grievances, it effectively ended labor's flirtation with the smaller political parties like the socialists, and in turn, that effectively ended the socialists. Let's take a look at strikes for a minute, because that's how I led into this most topical of topics. Though it doesn't happen like this lately, thank God, historic strikes often turn violent and even deadly. Though it happened from both sides, the losers were overwhelmingly the workers. Miners' strikes, mostly coal but also copper miners, have been especially deadly over the years. Of course, so was a miner's job. Working in noxious underground gas, that little canary in the coal mine, that's no joke. There were deadly explosions at cave-ins, legs crushed between mining trolleys, and of course, a disease called black lung that was what you died from in your 50s and 60s if none of that other shit killed you beforehand. In the 19th and into the early 20th century, most everything was powered by coal, so the stakes are pretty huge. And I can name a bunch of strikes that turned really ugly, and in a minute, I will. But none come to mind that have the words war, 
battle, and massacre nearly as frequently as the miners do. In 1921, some coal miners in West Virginia had been on a two-year strike. John Sayles used it as a backdrop for a really good movie, but it ended up in something called the Battle of Blair Mountain, and it was the largest armed uprising in U.S. history aside from the Civil War. 10,000 armed miners against 3,000 strike breakers all over the workers' attempt to unionize. There were murders, one total piece of shit sheriff who deployed poison gas and bombs that were surplus from World War I against the miners even after most of them had given up the fight and were headed home. Ultimately, the mine owners and their paid lick spittles in elected office sent in the United States Army, complete with military airplanes, including bombers. I am not making this shit up. The last holdout miners, many of them World War I veterans themselves, refused to fire on U.S. Army troops. Almost 30 of the sheriff's strike breakers were killed, about 100 miners were killed, and almost 1,000 miners were indicted for murder, conspiracy, and get this, treason against the state of West Virginia, which surely has something to do with wearing shoes and having more than 10 teeth. These striking miners gave us Mother Jones. Miners also have, without a doubt, the very best strike songs, and that's from the west of England and Wales to that fantastic old West Virginia bluegrass, all the way down to U2 and John Prine's song Paradise. Here's a lyric from an American miner protest song from 1895 written by a guy named Isaac Hanna. They keep cutting our wages time after time. Where we once had a dollar, we now have a dime. While our souls are near famished and our bodies are sore, we're paid off in checks from the company store. There were even minor protest songs from West Virginia that were written by Italian miners who were brought in for lower wages and became part of those wanting to unionize. And as an aside, let me say, no one strikes as well as the Italians. Today, you can go online and check the schedule of upcoming Italian transportation strikes. They book strike days just to remind everyone of their power. And they strike the slow local trains, but not the fast, fancy ones that tourists take. It's like, hey, Giuseppe's kid has soccer practice that afternoon and his wife is having drinks with her sisters. What do you say we go on strike from two to four? The song I quoted, by the way, is called The Company Store, and it was a real thing, that company store, with lots of these workers. The owners paid you not in money, but in scrip, which was only good in a store they owned, a store where they set all the prices. So they profited from your labor and also profited from your purchases of essentials. Often, they also owned your houses and charged you rent, so they're profiting from that as well. In the 20th century, John L. Lewis ended up as the head of the United Mine Workers, the union my favorite grandfather belonged to, and Lewis is probably the most labor leader-looking dude in the history of dudes. He finally got fed up with the AFL's bias toward trade unions over industrial workers and broke away in the 1930s in the most depressing part of the Depression and formed the CIO, Congress of Industrial Organizations and workers in rubber, steel, auto building all joined in. Eventually, the CIO merged with the AFL, and that's the origin of what was once this monolithic power of American labor. 
The railroads have come up a ton so far because they dominated the country at the time. They moved all the goods, the mail, the people who wanted to go more than 20 or 30 miles. Go to a significant number of big American cities back then, and the largest employer was a railroad. And each trade had a separate union. Conductors, engineers, brakemen, signalmen, yardmasters. There are still 13 different railroad unions to this day. But the thing that provoked a shitstorm of trouble was an 1894 strike at Pullman, the company that made sleeper cars for all the railroads in America. Pullman was one of those brand names that became a generic word, like when a boomer Xeroxes a piece of paper or a Brit hoovers their drawing room. The Pullman workers, represented by the American Railway Union, got a deal so raw that you would swear Ted Cruz was involved. George Pullman, who owned the company as well as the town in suburban Chicago where all the workers lived, said times were bad, meaning his investments were down thanks to another of those financial panics. So he cut wages by 25%. Thing was, he also owned the workers' homes, and he didn't cut their rent. So they went on strike. I'm saving the union leader Eugene Debs for his own podcast someday, but the short of it is, after the ARU brought most of the nation to its knees with as many as a quarter million railroad workers going out on strike, the feds issued an injunction and Grover Cleveland sent in U.S. Army troops. 14,000 military and law enforcement guys pour into Chicago. There was shooting and murders, and after six or seven weeks of shutdown, the American public turned against the unions because, for Christ's sake, they just want their freaking mail. If only the public had long enough memories about things like government shutdowns. <laughs> anyway, President Cleveland felt bad enough about all of this that he placated the workers by creating Labor Day. True story. You all know what scabs are, the non-union people brought in to work the jobs of strikers. But they used to have strike breakers, and that is not the same thing. These were men hired specifically to intimidate and commit acts of physical violence. The owners regularly hired detective agencies to end strikes or attempts at unionization. And they often did this by simply gunning down the union organizers. A union is going to cost us money, so we'll just murder the people behind it. One of the early detective groups involved in all this were the Pinkertons, the same group that was founded by Abraham Lincoln's bodyguard, and we ultimately know how well that worked out. The Pinkertons were involved in hundreds of strikes and killed their share of workers with their private army, but the one that's most famous was the Homestead Strike, where they got their asses kicked by steelworkers armed with an old cannon and a flaming boxcar. That performance most definitely did not help the Union cause either. The most notorious of all these detective groups was the Baldwin Feltz Detective Agency, who killed organizers during Blair Mountain and a few years earlier perpetrated the Ludlow Massacre, the deadliest labor confrontation in American history. Baldwin Feltz detectives, deadlier even than actors named Baldwin, led their own strike breakers and Colorado National Guard troops against a tent city set up by striking miners on land the Union at least. The strike breakers used snipers and a machine gun mounted in an armored car to kill as many as 200 or more union members and their families over the full run of the strike. On the final day, Colorado guardsmen overran the tent camp and beat miners to death with rifle butts, shot them, set tents on fires with families inside. At least five women and 11 children 
were killed by these strike breakers and guardsmen. And I should mention that the miners' families were living in tents because the coal company had evicted them from their homes. Longshoremen, particularly on the West Coast, went on strike for three months in 1934, shut down shipping, and virtually cut off the territory of Alaska, which relied entirely on ships from the West Coast. There were riots in Los Angeles with police firing into strikers, smaller clashes in Seattle, Portland, a big one between Union Longshoremen and California National Guard in San Francisco and Oakland. Eleven strikers were killed. A year later, the Gulf Coast Longshoremen went on strike, and 11 more Union men were murdered by police in Houston, Port Arthur, and Lake Charles. There are so many violent strikes, but I'll mention one other. And that's when Chicago Teamsters went on strike back in 1905. This was when they literally handled teams of animals, like horses and oxen, hence the name. The term Teamsters passed right over to the truck drivers who hauled the same kind of freight. In 1905, the thing started with a tailor's strike, but 10,000 Teamsters went out in sympathy. They targeted the two biggest local stores in Chicago, Montgomery Ward and Sears Roebuck. The city's employers reacted by forming their own organization, and they brought in black workers from St. Louis to drive their wagons, which were escorted by Chicago police. The Teamsters finally agreed to end the strike if they could just be rehired, but the Employers Association said no. So more Teamsters went out on strike. All in all, there were 21 union members killed, but what caused the end of the strike was when this massive bribery scheme came to light, where employers were bribing Teamsters to go on strike against their competitors, and Teamsters were demanding shakedown money. In the end, it was the Teamsters who got the black eye and it virtually destroyed their power in Chicago for another 20-plus years. Now, Jimmy Hoffa, is the reason most people know the Teamsters, and he's not remembered for what he did with the Union, but for the fact that his body has never been found, even if the curse of the Jets at the Meadowland should be a huge giveaway. Frankly, I'm waiting for the joke to be on all of us, and it turns out the guy's 110 years old, and the whole time he's been living in Bolivia, where he hosted a reality show called Dancing with Yaks. The idea of bringing in black and immigrant workers to fill the jobs of striking whites is by design. The owners knew that first, they could get these African-American workers, many of whom had just migrated to the industrial north to escape farm poverty in the south, to work for less. They also knew that seeing blacks and immigrants taking their jobs would infuriate any racist tendencies among the white union workers. So they're deliberately pitting one low-wage group against another. They don't care who wins because either way, the beneficiary is the owner. The low point of all of this came in 1917 in East St. Louis, Illinois. There was a series of strikes at meatpacking plants and other companies at precisely the same time that there was an influx of newly arrived African-American families from the South. In every case, the white unions won their overall job demands but lost some of their actual jobs because the companies kept some of the black workers. Tensions were building for weeks. There was a mass march by whites and beatings in late May, but the real trouble happened at the start of July when a Ford Model T with four whites drove through East St. Louis and fired into a crowd of blacks on the street. An hour later, a different Model T with four white passengers, two of whom were police officers, came down the same street and black residents fired into the car, killing the two policemen. 
The next day, thousands of whites came into the black sections of East St. Louis and shot, burned, rioted. They killed at least 40 people and maybe as many as 150. It was never determined. Labor was not the immediate spark, but that calculated race-based strike-breaking is what set everything on edge. That horrific low point brings us to the unions in the news today. Auto workers have had their share of strikes in the past, but the first one is well worth talking about. In 1936 and 37, auto workers started a sit-down strike against General Motors. They wanted the UAW recognized as their bargaining authority, and they needed a decent raise. The sit-down strike meant they showed up at work, but sat down and didn't do shit. That stopped scabs from taking their jobs and stopped police from beating the hell out of them, in theory. The GM management responded by turning off the heat and electricity in Detroit in January and stopped all food from being delivered to the strikers inside. There was some violence. It took 44 days, but the union won. The UAW then went on to organize at Chrysler and Ford, and its membership grew from 88,000 in 1937 to 650,000 just four years later. Of course, there have been past actors and writers' strikes, too. The 1988 writers' strike gave us the reality show Cops. 2007 led to American Gladiators. And, of course, a failing turd of a show called The Apprentice got rebooted to Celebrity Apprentice, and we ended up with a laming Cheeto as the President of the United States. SAG is an interesting union, the Screen Actors Guild, because unlike anything else, a lot of the leaders are household names famous actors. And never forget that it's a complicated world out there. Two of the most right-wing darlings in the late 20th century America, at least before the current crazy bastards moved the right wing entirely off the bird, were SAG presidents in allegedly oh-so-liberal Hollywood, Ronald Reagan and Charlton Heston. And I'm sure Heston would have stood up for Alec Baldwin better than his current crop of pansy-ass friends. You've seen all the memes about how labor unions brought us the eight-hour workday and weekends, and that's all true. You can also thank labor unions for paid sick days, paid vacations, overtime, coffee breaks, workers' comp, health and safety rules that keep you from losing a limb every time you go to the copier. When the United States started, up through the Civil War, an 80-hour work week was the norm. That's 12-hour days, six and a half days a week, and you were fully expected to drag your ass to church during that half day off. Think about those 12-hour days and imagine being a dog waiting by the window for you to get home from work. Whew. Life was much smellier in the 1840s. Go back to the U.S. in 1900 or so, and the work week was down to roughly 60 hours in the manufacturing sector and about 52 hours in the construction trade. Saturday was still not a day off. The first legislation to address this came in Massachusetts in 1879 when they mandated that employers couldn't require a normal workday to be more than 10 hours long. But there was a catch. It only applied to women. So, who specifically do we need to thank for our slacker lifestyle? In 1906, the Typographical Union, yep, the people who place letters for printing, managed to negotiate an eight-hour workday. Still six days a week, mind you, but just eight hours at a pop. You might actually have time for a date and 37 beers before you join the other 999 monkeys chained to a typewriter. Maritime and railroad workers were mandated at eight-hour days next because of safety concerns. During World War I, 
All the soldiers were off in France, and labor grew scarce here at home, and that in turn gave bargaining power to the unions to force more eight-hour days into contracts. Ford Motor Company, the ones who popularized the manufacturing assembly line, also were pioneers in going to the five-day work week. That was about 1920, and immediately the big business community started saying this short work week was going to decimate American productivity. And this part is tough to wrap your head around, but it really was in the 1920s, just a century ago, when a majority of Americans began to understand the concept of leisure time. In the 1930s, when the Depression is raging across the land, wolves howling at the door, dust storms, hand-me-down underwear, Henry Fonda soliloquies, and all that shit, first President Hoover and then Franklin Roosevelt championed the 30-hour work week. The thinking was it was an alternative to laying off workers altogether. Big business is all for it, and it passes the U.S. Senate in 1933. But then there's this unexpected pushback from the right wing who suddenly call this idea communism, and they say that the work week would be stuck at 30 hours forever after. A few years later, the work week was finally capped by federal law, first at 44 hours, with every hour more than that classified as overtime for half again as much pay. And just two years later, in 1940, the work week is defined as 40 hours. Today, the average U.S. worker actually toils about 50 or even 60 hours a week. And that is due to rises in gig economy, contract labor, having to hold two jobs because Ronald Reagan started the precipitous decline of the middle class. They credit where it's due. The labor movement had a chance to really be a leader in matters of race. And for a brief, shining moment or two, they were. Several of the earliest unions, including some of the farmers' unions, were integrated. When the AFL formed, they swore to demand integrated unions. But in the rest of America, by the late 1880s and 1890s, Jim Crow had taken firm hold. And that meant that within a given workplace or industry, it was whites who were given the skilled jobs and blacks who were kept pinned down in the unskilled, lower-paying jobs. So when the AFL tried to follow its own rules of organizing individual jobs, it came down to segregated work anyway. In 1895, after failing to launch a mixed-race machinist union, the AFL caved in and allowed formation of the all-white International Association of Machinists. The same thing happened to women and immigrants. They were defended in rhetoric, but abandoned in practice. The only exception were Asian immigrants who weren't even defended in the first damn place. What this did is you ended up with two separate unions in the same workplace. Longshoremen are a particularly crazy-ass example. There were white unions and black unions on the same docks. When a ship tied up for unloading, the contracts with the Port Authority might send a black crew down into the hold to unload for four hours, and then they leave, and the white union comes into the same ship and picks right up where the black longshoremen had left off. And if that doesn't spotlight the incredible stupidity of racism... I am at a loss. In spite of murderous debacles like East St. Louis, some of the first civil rights gains did come through labor unions. Before Brown versus the Board of Education, before LBJ and the Civil Rights Act, which was heavily lobbied by the AFL-CIO, by the way, even before Jackie Robinson broke the color barrier in baseball, the top civil rights leader in the country was A. Philip Randolph, the head of a union, the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters. In 1940, on the eve of America's entry into World War II, 
Randolph threatened a march of 100,000 black workers on Washington, D.C. to protest discrimination in hiring in the defense industry. And six days before the march was to take place, Franklin Roosevelt, also getting pressure from his wife Eleanor, gave in and signed an order outlawing discrimination in defense production or government. Another turning point was this Hughes Tool court case at the Supreme Court that ruled that separate locals were illegal because whites were still being offered the better jobs. And yeah, this was Hughes Tool, as in Howard Hughes, as in two-foot curly fingernails, and saving his pee in jars. If you saw The Aviator, very fun flick, you recall that the oil field drilling bits were the backbone of his billions back when a billion dollars meant something. As crazy as he might have been at the end, Howard Hughes would never have tanked a social media platform or gone six miles under the ocean in an aluminum foil submarine. Hughes Tool even had these great athletic facilities for their workers and ball teams, but only the white ones. So, winning this lawsuit opened things up, though several of the black unions decided to keep their own separate local because they thought it meant more work. The American labor movement has most definitely had high points and low points. The highest point came toward the end of the Great Depression when FDR's New Deal incorporated a bunch of labor's wishes into national policy. That allied organized labor with the Democratic Party. In 1935, Congress, filled with those New Deal folks, passed the Wagner Act. It created the National Labor Relations Board, which changed the entire nomenclature from mediating disputes between management and labor to simply enforcing workers' rights. It gave all employees the right to form a union, and it mandated that employers negotiate with a democratically elected union. But Republicans don't like unions, so in 1947, back in control of Congress, they passed the Taft-Hartley Act over President Harry Truman's veto. Taft-Hartley created a slew of restrictions on striking and boycotts, even on sympathetic picketing. It allowed employers to deliver threatening anti-union speeches at work. But the big damage was allowing states to pass right-to-work laws, more appropriately known as right-to-work-for-less. That prohibited people being required to join the union at their place of employment, even though they would still be entitled to all of the gains the union negotiated on their behalf. They just didn't have to pay dues. It was like perpetually eating out of your neighbor's refrigerator, or quite literally stealing your co-worker's lunch. Eight states took Congress up on that right away. Four more in the 1950s, another four between 1960 and 2000, by far, the biggest number of states to have passed this right-to-work legislation came this century as a result of anti-union lobbying, a.k.a. bribe money, bringing the total to 28. In the entirely predictable department, median household income in so-called right-to-work states is almost $12,000 a year lower than in pro-union states. And the poverty rate in the anti-union states is two points higher. In spite of Taft-Hartley, for about 20 years afterwards, unions kept flexing their political power. In addition to all the other stuff for which you should thank a union, it was organized labor support for Lyndon Johnson's domestic agenda that put things like the Voting Rights Act over the top. Ultimately, the right to work for less movement made more and more inroads, thanks to bribes, those campaign contributions, flowing from big business to feckless politicians. 
under every single Republican and a couple of very centrist Democrats, you got deregulation of communication, transportation industries, you got loosening tax laws and gutting regulation so that an avalanche of U.S. manufacturing work could be shipped overseas, where poverty-level wages and child labor were totally jake with everyone. This brought on the big plant closings that destroyed many Midwestern cities. He may be an acerbic jackhole, but Roger Moore was right. By the end of the Reagan administration, union membership in the U.S. had fallen to less than a third of what it was at the end of World War II. And the erosion of American middle class was moving like a bug in a power flush toilet. Those Republican anti-union forces were totally blatant, too. Starting with Reagan, Republicans actively, openly, and relentlessly worked to destroy unions. They signed off on this policy of destroying unions since it meant more cashola into the pockets of their rich-ass handlers, who in turn tossed their politician lapdogs plenty of bones. The most famous union busting under Reagan was, of course, the air traffic controllers. Now, of all the unions for that dipshit to go after, he picked the one where airplanes full of people can potentially run into each other. He couldn't have picked the janitorial workers where the biggest risk to humanity was a lingering cleanup on aisle three. I mean, Jesus, Ronnie, some people are already scared enough about flying in a thin metal tube without you putting zombified trade school dropouts in charge of routing their aircraft. Ah, <sighs> catch my breath. I want to leave with some hardcore facts about how unions impact the economy. The simplest way to put this from a history standpoint is that with unions, we have a middle class, and without them, we don't. Looking at the 20th century, which is our most recently completed century without going over, you see that whenever union membership was highest, income disparity in the United States was lowest. As an in-your-pocketbook example, using collective bargaining, the whole point of unions in the first place, U.S. unions more than tripled wages in manufacturing between 1945 and 1970. More than tripled wages in just 25 years. That's how we ended up with a strong middle class. Compare that to the over 40 years since the Reagan administration started in 1981. Real wages against inflation have actually gone down. The only thing that's increased is pay for top management, and that has gone up, I hope you're sitting down, more than a thousand percent. Income for the average worker over the same 40 plus years has gone up about 12 percent, and that is a loser against inflation. And nobody wants to be a loser, right? If there's one silver lining to this, unions, what remains of them, are more diverse in gender and race than they've ever been. And there is a growing pro-union sentiment among the young. In 2022, there were over 50% more union petitions filed with the NLRB than in the year before. Of course, in the year prior, everyone was still drinking horse dewormer and working from home. But I'll take it. Hopefully, tech industry workers will wise up and realize that management giving them a ping pong table and a latte bar does not equal job security. And someday, the old hardliners like the auto workers will study some history and understand exactly who put them in such a hollowed out situation in the first damn place. Maybe they can start with this podcast. Solidarity. Thanks for listening. Be sure to check out my website at MikeVanceWriter.com. Prick the Balloon is copyrighted by Mike Vance, all rights reserved.